This episode is sponsored by NOAA, the home of audio journalism. The first 100 people to visit newsoveraudio.com forward slash media tribe will get a week free to listen to articles from the Washington Post, Foreign Affairs and Harvard Business Review, plus 50% off. Welcome to Media Tribe, the podcast that's on a mission to restore faith in journalism. I'm Shona Kinnair, an award-winning journalist with over 10 years of experience working for some of the biggest news outlets in the industry. Every week, I'm going to introduce you to some of the world's most respected journalists, filmmakers and media executives, and you're going to hear the story behind the storyteller. You'll get a sense of the integrity and hard graft that's involved in journalism, and hopefully you'll go away feeling that this craft is worth valuing. But it was the first time I ever see a child die. It was actually his grandfather who said, bring that camera, like, bring the camera woman back. And then so we had these people running to us and he was having his last breaths. And we got there and I said, don't film. Like, it's such a personal moment. And then the grandfather was like, no, film, like, film. And, and the, the boy was clearly dying. It was just so sad. And I just remember him saying, like, it's so important for people to see what they've done to our children. My guest today is Nawal Al-Magafi, the BBC's Emmy-winning special correspondent. Nawal Al-Magafi, you're so welcome to the Media Tribe. I'm so excited. I've been listening to them and now I'm so excited to have my turn. Well, I'm delighted to have you on, Noel. We crossed paths many years ago, I'm going to say maybe 2012 or 2013. And um, I have a lovely memory of you and I in the Yemeni embassy in London, uh, sipping sweet tea, trying to get visas. I mean, it was you absolutely doing all the hard work, obviously, and me just sitting there enjoying the tea. I know. Do you remember the piece of advice that man gave you from behind his desk? Yes. You want to tell our audience about that, (laughs) Noel? I can't remember what he said exactly, but I remember him asking whether you're married or not, or whether you've had children or not. And then like basically saying, you know, time is ticking. It's time to (laughs) move along. (laughs) He did. I remember him. um, He asked me if I had a, a husband and I told him I had a boyfriend who is now my husband, but he was particularly disgusted that my husband and our husband had proposed at that point. So I obviously went home and gave him a hard time, as I always do. Um, Anyway, Noel, it worked out. out. Enough about me. Let's start the interview by you telling our audience about your amazing career to date and, and how you landed in the BBC as their now special correspondent. I mean, you know, like with everyone, it really wasn't an easy start. And I think, you know, we met when I was right at the beginning of my career. Um, But I never like, I always knew I wanted to work in TV going into university, but I wasn't sure what. And my parents were actually not very supportive about me becoming a journalist for all the obvious reasons. My parents are originally Yemeni. They know all the risks that are involved in becoming a journalist uh, growing up in Yemen for them. So they they weren't really very supportive. So my dad, you know, really pressured me to go into medicine uh, at university. So I, I did the first year and then I dropped out, unfortunately. It just wasn't for me. And then I, I went in and I did economics with politics. And then they still were really hopeful that I'd graduate and go into something like finance or, you know, <laughs> something very kosher, basically. But I knew I wanted to become a journalist. Although I think it's really important to add that I never, ever wished 
to become a war correspondent or to work in war zones. Like I'm such a wuss. I didn't imagine in a million years that I would ever go to the places that I've been to. And I really think it's what happened in Yemen and how things evolved and just not not just reporting on the story, but living the story too, that made me realize how important it was to do that job. And it just kind of happened naturally. And over the years, because, you know, when the war broke out in Yemen, my parents were actually in Yemen at the time with my younger siblings. No journalists could get in at the time. And it was actually, and at the time, I had never been to a war zone, basically. That was my first war zone. And it was actually my father who called me from Yemen and said, you really have to come here. You have to come and report on this. And ever since then, ever since I went to Yemen and reported on the war there, They've been so supportive. You know, everyone always asks me, uh, you know, when you've gone to Iraq or Syria or whatever, your parents must be terrified. But actually, after that experience, after they lived a war themselves and they realized how important journalism is um, in, you know, getting the stories out there and holding people accountable, they've been so supportive. And they don't actually voice their fears when I'm traveling. <laughs> well, that's amazing. And I mean, what, what I've found really brilliant about your career is that, you know, you haven't just covered Yemen. I mean, what I'm really, really encouraged by is that you haven't been pigeonholed at all as, you know, well, she's, you know, she's Yemeni. Let's send her to Yemen. That's all she'll be doing for us. You've covered, obviously, the Middle East extensively. You speak Arabic, of course, but also you, you, you've you covered Ireland. I remember now having a conversation with you, Noel, before you went to do um, a piece for Newsnight about the abortion referendum there. Uh, so that would have been back in 2018. Um, so it's 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 amazing. Like you, you, you cover everything now. Isn't that right? Yeah, I mean, initially it was really hard. I was pigeonholed in the beginning, but I think it's really important when you're going into journalism is to find your niche, right? And to find a story that you're really passionate about and that only you can do or that you can do really well to to kind of stand out from the crowd. And for me, Yemen was that. It's, you know, I had access, I knew it inside out, and I just, I discovered so many different stories that no one else could get to. And so it was really important for me to do that, to find my place in the media landscape where, you know, it's just so competitive. Um, And... And also, I carry on reporting on Yemen because it's such a personal story for me and it's really important. Um, but, but it was hard to come out of that and to prove myself, to prove to people that I can do other things. You know, I'm not just the, the reporter, you know, the Yemen reporter, as they'd say. Um, and, and it meant that I basically had to force myself, you know, force myself to prove or like I just had to prove that I could do what I do in Yemen somewhere else. So I had to find my own stories in other places and say, you know, no one else has presented you with this story and I know I can do it and I know I can do it well. And as soon as I started doing that, it just became a lot easier. And I think it was more that I had to prove to myself that I could do it. And then once I'd done that, it was easy to convince everyone else. 
And and you you really do it so well. I mean, particularly with Yemen, you know, you you have really really shown the human cost of war um, through your kind of news reports and and your various documentaries as well, Nawal. I mean, my big question of the interview is always whether there is a story or a film or documentary that you're extremely proud of, which I'll ask you now. And whether it's Yemen or not, that's okay. But we'll inevitably go back to Yemen at some point. I mean, I think there's two for me that have basically been the highlights of my career so far. And definitely it is Starving Yemen, just because that was my first piece um, on the war in Yemen. And it was such an emotional one. And it was such a difficult for one, one for me personally to, to go back home and to go back to the place that I grew up in and to see it completely destroyed by war. And also to see, you know, I had such a wonderful childhood in Yemen. Like, you know, Yemen was such a beautiful place when I was a child. And I, I, you know, I went to school there. I used to play with my cousins there. And and I have such fond memories of it. And to go back to the same places I used to go to when I was a child and to see children just living the most in the most horrific conditions, um, to see all those severely malnourished kids that we saw in, in starving Yemen, it was it was so difficult. Um, and when I came back, I definitely came back a different person. Um, but what you know, I'm so proud of it because the reaction was incredible. And I think making it, I was convinced as you know, a lot of people, a lot of the mums in the film say, you know, no one's going to care. You're filming us, but no one in the outside world actually cares about what we're going through. And throughout the process, I started to get convinced myself that no one cares about what happens, what's happening in Yemen. And so when it came out and there was like just this outpouring from the audience that watched it, all these mums getting in touch with me, all these people texting me and emailing me and sending letters to the BBC. Um, And I just thought, no, people do care, you know, like this is why we do this. And it really just, it kind of made all of it worth it. And a lot of people were like, you need to go to therapy after making that film. (laughs) For me, the best therapy was just seeing how incredible the audience can be and how you, you know, the reaction was amazing. Like, you know, we raised so much money. People didn't want to just give to charities. They were finding the children themselves. They were like going way past me, but finding the children themselves and supporting them. Like I went back to visit the kids and it was like, oh, this woman from Liverpool got in touch and she pays for him to go to school now. And I'm just like, wow, this is incredible. Well, that's extraordinary. And and, and it, I mean, it, it was an amazing film and it was it was very hard to watch. I, I, I watched it when it aired. Um, I mean, that's a few years ago now, but it was a very, very hard one to watch. Um, Nawal, because you're not, we weren't looking at images of, of malnutrition. It, we were looking at starving, starving kids. You could see, you know, bones popping out of their bodies. And there is a scene in that film, as far as I recall, where you do, you, you just seemed so upset. And, you know, as as a person, as you say, who grew up there, it, it must be desperately hard to cover home turf in that way and see your own country being destroyed by bombs made by the UK, where you currently live and, and where I am here in the US. I mean, how, how were you feeling internally in that particular scene? I mean, it still makes me so emotional, that scene. But I remember it because it was the first time I ever, I mean, now I've kind of witnessed it many times, but it was the first time I ever see someone 
see a child die and it was it was just so depressing that it was just something so preventable you know i remember the child um passes away his name was uh Shaib. he dies in the in the film it was like he just needed an antibiotic because he had a fever and they didn't have the antibiotic and for me that was just it was it was such a horrible um situation to to be in the middle of to see his mum there and his grandfather and it was so painful and i remember thinking you know someone told me that we'd visit we've seen him we'd filmed the scene with him and then we went to a different ward and it was actually his grandfather who said bring that camera like bring the camera woman back and then so there we had these people running to us and he was actually gasping for it like he was having his last breaths when when the grandfather called for us and we got there and I said don't film like it's such a personal moment for the family and I just thought and then the grandfather was like no film like film and and the the boy was clearly dying it was just so sad and I just remember him saying like it's so important for people to see what they've done to our children Yeah. Oh, sorry, Noel. But you know, that's testament to your journalism, your bravery and, you know, your will to show those pictures to the rest of the world. It was a very, very important film at the time. And as you say, it did lead to impact. And, you know, I know that's what you think journalism is all about. It's certainly what I think it's all about. And and you continue to to push the story forward in the sense that, um, you know, you've been back several times um, covering the cholera outbreak. And, you, you know, you've, I think you've shown the world that it isn't just poor families you know oh that are starving and dying and that you know we can't relate to at all you know you, you've really showed no 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 this is a country an entire country obviously under siege but also dying I mean as I said you live in London you know where where we know these bombs that are being dropped by the Saudi-led c- coalition are being made in Britain like what do you do as a journalist working for a British institution you know what can you do about that? It's really hard, right? Because as journalists, we just have to remain impartial. You know, it's it's really difficult. For me, I've always said, you know, it's not about selling the weapons. It's about being responsible about how they're being used. And that's what I continuously say. And so as a journalist, we just have to keep being there when they're not being used correctly, because that's how you hold uh, the estates accountable. And so that's what I've always done is try, you know, show the impact of what's happening with these weapons, show the impact of this blockade. And as long as we carry on doing that, then we're putting pressure on governments to, to, to really think twice about their decisions. Uh, and it, 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 you know, it works when these films come out and when these news pieces come out on the 10 and stuff, they do have an impact. Um, and we, we see change when starving Yemen came out at the time, the big story, the whole reason why the humanitarian situation was so bad is because they'd bombed the cranes in the port. And so none, no food was able to be offloaded into the country. Um, and as soon as starving Yemen came out, the U S sent emergency cranes into Yemen, these makeshift cranes, so that food could be offloaded. It's like little things like that, that make really make you feel like what we do is so important. And it's just so rewarding. So that's all I can do, really, is just to keep doing my job. And just like everyone else, sometimes you just feel so helpless. But but it's covering these stories that make you feel like, okay, at least I'm doing my part in some sort of way. Well, I'm so glad the career in politics and economics didn't work out after all, Noel. So um, that is <laughs> that is good news for all of us. The Media Tribe podcast is brought to you by Noah, an app I listen to when I'm out walking my little son. 
Noah is obsessed with quality journalism and lets you listen to important curated audio articles from world-class publishers like The Economist, Fast Company and many more. Their mission is to help listeners like you understand the big issues, get multiple perspectives and go beyond breaking news. The first 100 Media Tribe listeners to visit newsoveraudio.com forward slash Media Tribe will get one week free plus 50% off an annual NOAA premium subscription thereafter. Go to newsoveraudio.com forward slash Media Tribe or hit the link in the show notes to start your free trial. That's newsoveraudio.com forward slash Media Tribe. And what's more, by supporting NOAA, you're massively supporting the Media Tribe podcast. Right, back to Noel. You did mention there's another story that you're you're quite proud of as well, Noel. If you want to dip into that one, I think definitely the our film Iraq Secret Sex Trade. I'm very proud of. Um, it was really difficult to make, but from the moment I heard about the story, I just knew it was so important. And I remember whenever I pitched it, everyone was like, yeah, you're never going to be able to do that. You're never going to be able to make this film. And even in Iraq, when we got to Iraq, every time we spoke to anyone local about it, they were like, yeah, you're never going to be able to film that. Like everyone knew it was widespread and it was happening, the sexual exploitation of these young girls by religious clerics. But it was just no one believed that we'd be able to capture it on camera. And it took, I mean, it wasn't easy. <laughs> it took a really long time. I don't doubt that for a second. And um, your amazing Iraqi producer, Mace Albaya, um, worked on you, worked with you on, on that one. Um, so the headline of, of your film, um, Nawal, is you were covering these, in inverted commas, temporary marriages. I think they're, is it muta? Yeah. Marriages, they're called. And basically it allows men to get married for a couple of hours, a couple of days, a couple of months by clerics. And it's all in a bid to just really have sex, um, not just with women, but with young girls as well. Um, th- there's a really, really, really grim scene where a your undercover reporter is asking the cleric what he can do to, I think it was a 13-year-old girl that he was going to temporarily marry. And he kind of depicts what he's allowed to do under Sharia law. And that involved, I mean, you can tell our audience, you know the story a lot better than I do, Noel. He said, I remember him telling him that he, basically, if she's a virgin, he can't, she can't lose her virginity, but he can do whatever he wants, you know, from behind. And he could do whatever he wanted as long as she doesn't lose her virginity from the front. Which I just thought, it was just like, you know, and it wasn't just he, our undercover reporter was saying that she's 13 years old, but then the clerics actually tell him it's fine, even if she's nine years old, like, it doesn't matter. Um, it's just that if she's a virgin, you can't, you can't penetrate her from the front, but you can do it anally. But if she is not a virgin, then you can do whatever you want. And I was just like, oh, I just remember those sessions where me and Mace would, um, sit with the undercover reporter he'd tell us you know he'd come out of these situations and start telling us what the cleric had said and I swear sometimes I thought he was making it up and I was like listen let's just watch the footage first let's just see what you filmed before you know let's just wait and then we'd get back to the hotel and we'd watch the footage and me and Mace were just stunned like you know when we pitched the story 
we didn't think it was that bad. We thought, you know, they're selling women. We, we thought it was bad. Don't get me wrong. But like, we thought it was going to be a film about how these clerics were selling women for sex, a bit like prostitution. But we didn't think that we'd actually be able to capture clerics on camera saying that because then it shows you how widespread it is because these clerics were chosen at random. So if, if you choose three clerics at random and all of, you are, all of them are saying you can sexually abuse a child, then, you know, that means this is a widespread phenomenon in, in these areas. So it was very, very shocking. I mean, essentially, as you say, it was prostitution, but also they were opening up a shop for pedophiles to come to this particular location in, in Iraq, but also for foreigners to try and get in and access young girls in this way. I mean, it was, I don't even know how to describe it. it it's appalling. And it, am I right in thinking, Nawal, that, that that practice is illegal under Iraqi law, but it's legal under Sharia law once the girl has turned nine? Is that right? Well, it's really complicated with Sharia law. It's definitely illegal in Iraqi law, and mutamar generally is illegal in Iraqi law. And um, with Sharia, it's really debatable. I mean, personally, there's nothing in the Quran that says this is allowed. But of course, there are different interpretations of the Quran, and basically, different clerics write up these different interpretations, and based on who you follow, you follow their interpretation. And really, you pick and people end up picking and choosing what works for them. You know, so if a guy wants to have muta sex with a nine-year-old, then he'll pick and choose this cleric who's saying he's allowed to do so, uh, which is very convenient. But but Islam doesn't allow this. Um, like the Quran doesn't allow this. But it's just, as we were making this film, I think the most difficult part was as we're revealing these things, I was just like, oh my God, the backlash is going to be so bad. Uh, and I'm the face of this. So it, it was really scary, the thought of the day it comes out and how are people going to react to this? Uh, and the reaction was very mixed. You know, of course, the film did really well, but the reaction from the Muslim community, especially the Shia Muslim community, was was really bad. So you in the film, you obviously, as all journalists, must do give a right of reply to the person you've made, the, made these allegations against and the cleric that you called up just hung up on you. You called him from London. Do you mean, Nawal, the, the reaction from the people you filmed with or actually people within the Shia community who maybe knew stuff like this was going on? No, no, the reaction from the Shia community. So basically what happened was, obviously the clerics we confronted and, and you saw that in the film. Uh, and then we also sent the film or at least our findings to Ayatollah Sistani, who in our film, we explain this. He, one of his, he, um, he had a teaching in his book that said this is allowed, muta marriage with a child. And so we basically told him, look, your teaching, this is what's what it's resulted in. Clerics are doing this in Iraq, and children are being abused. And actually, he put out a statement then and said, then I'm going to retract my teaching because they're abusing it. This is not what it means. And that was incredible because he basically put out this teaching to every single marriage office in Najaf and Karbala and stuff. And so all these marriage offices were now told that this is not allowed in Islam and this goes against my teaching. And But then when the film came out, the Shia community just felt like this was a stab at their religion. 
They right. felt like this was an attack against Shia Islam. So we had protests outside the BBC. You know, I had to have security for like months afterwards. I couldn't really? take to. Yeah, yeah, it was really bad. I didn't know that in a while. And, and was Mace the same? No, because actually Mace, she's named in the, in the credits. But I mean, it's just because my face was in the film. So everyone knew how I looked like and who I was. And so I'm a lot more public than Mace is. But yeah, it was really, really difficult initially but it was expected I mean I was fully aware that the reaction was going to be really hard I mean I think it's kind of blown over slightly now (laughs) people are starting to forget about it but initially and I remember we had this frontline club screening and outside the frontline club as we were watching the film for the first time you could hear the chants of the protesters outside the frontline club And then there was just a lot of angry people in the audience as well. They'd planted people in the audience. Oh, wow. I didn't know that in a while. I really didn't. Oh, that's astonishing. Well, I mean, that's such a good sign that you, that your journalism was very, very good and, um, and rich and, and you were, I mean, these people have to be exposed. Um, So well done. More impact again there in a while. No, no, it was really, I'm so proud of it because, you know, we closed down the marriage offices of those clerics in the film you know, Ayatollah Sistani, Grand Ayatollah Sistani put out a new teaching and it's great. Um, that's that's basically all you want when you make a film like that to make some sort of change. You know, next time a cleric gets asked if, you know, someone can marry a child, he'll say no. He'll say no. And, and that film went on to win two Emmys this year, uh, which sadly you didn't get to go to because of the coronavirus. But you looked very glamorous on Skype or Zoom or wherever it was done, Nawal, um, as usual. One last question um, before you go, Nawal, kind of what we tapped into before, but more from a female perspective. You know, have you found that being a woman has helped you in your role um, as a special correspondent at the BBC? I think, you know, just tapping into what we were speaking about earlier, about me reporting on Yemen a lot and then not being pigeonholed and, you know, progressing onto other stories. I think, first of all, being a woman of color and being originally Yemeni, um, I think it has been really difficult in a place like the BBC and, and just, you know, in the UK in general, it's been really difficult because you're constantly having to prove yourself. Like I've been told numerous times, for example, oh, but you know, maybe we should get, for example, Stacey Dooley to report this because she's more relatable. And don't get me wrong, I'm a huge fan of Stacey Dooley and I think she's absolutely brilliant. But it has been disheartening at times for people to tell you that you can't cover abortion in Northern Ireland, for example, or, you know, that's not a story for you. Whereas for a white journalist, they can go and report on whatever they want around the world. So that's been quite difficult. But I think over the years, I've learned to kind of put my foot down and say, no, I can do this. And that's ridiculous. But generally, as a woman working in the Middle East, I've, you know, people always say, oh, she's a woman, that must be so difficult. And, you know, extra applause for, for being a female working in the Middle East. But I found it to work in my favor. I'm like, I get access to people's homes to speak to women who would never let a man into their house. When I go and interview a politician when I first sit down they're not very threatened by me because I am a woman and then I take them by surprise afterwards but uh, usually they'll say yes because I'm a woman and then realize oh god I shouldn't have done that just picking up on your your first point there Nawal I th- that is so so important that that 
is changing. It has to change. I think it's absolutely outrageous that because you're a person of colour, you can't cover abortion in Northern Ireland. I mean, who makes those rules? And, you know, as we both know, so many white journalists have made their names in places like Syria and Yemen. And I'm so, so glad and heartened that industry is changing. People are opening up their eyes and realising that 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 somebody as amazing as you can cover any story they mm. want. So good for you, Nawal. Potentially lighter question, and I know you being you and all the travel that you pursue, that you will provide the goods for me. But is there a bonkers experience having worked in this industry that you'd like to tell our audience about? You know what? I you I knew this was going to come because I knew you ask everyone this question. So a few years ago, I interviewed the president who's now been killed, but back then, president of Yemen, Ali Abdullah Saleh. And he asked me, he was like, are you married? And at the time, I wasn't. And then this is the repetition of what happened to you, Shauna, basically. And then he said, you know, a woman is like a glass of milk. Okay, if she goes, if you keep her out too long without getting married, she goes off. And then nobody wants her. (laughs) And I thought, okay, anyway. Fast forward a few years later, I met my partner, got married. And then my husband's originally Yemeni. Um, and he goes back to visit his parents in Yemen. His father's, you know, quite influential in Yemen. He went to meet the president. So he took my husband with him. And then he said, so are you married? And my husband said, yes, I am actually. And I think you met my wife. And then he said, who's your wife? And he was like, Noel Al-Magafi, she works for the BBC. And he was like, oh, Taha, she's a good girl. She took my advice. <laughs> so my husband came home and he was like, what was his advice? And I said, oh my God, I can't believe he remembers. That's brilliant, Noel. That's absolutely brilliant. Thank you so, so much for coming on the podcast. I know how busy you are and I know we've both tried hard to get this interview um, into our diary. So you're an absolute star, Noel. We really appreciate it. No, of course. It's such a pleasure. And it's always good to catch up with you, Shona. If you like what you heard on this episode of Media Tribe, that's very good news because I'm going to be dropping new shows every week and every month on my new Media Tribe Spotlight series. Also, if you haven't already, make sure to take a listen to previous shows with some legendary folk in the industry. And as ever, please, please, please do leave me a rating and review as it really does help other people find this podcast. Finally, if you do have any guest suggestions, drop me a note on Twitter. I'm at Shauna with a G-H or at Shauna Kinnear on Instagram. And again, that's with a G-H. Right, that's it. See you soon. This episode was edited by Ryan Ferguson.